Hopefully uh, you will make it a point, here's an announcement, to be here at our Thanksgiving prayer service. It'll be less than an hour, uh, and it'll be across the street, but it'll be focused really specifically on prayer. There may be a little singing, but a lot of praying, uh, just giving thanks to the Lord. I I hope you make it a point, 5 o'clock tonight, but across the street. Um, Also, tomorrow, just since I'm getting these out of the way, tomorrow... At 9 o'clock over in the historic sanctuary, we're also going to be decorating for the hanging of the green service. So if you have time or available to help, uh, we would love for you to be here. Uh, You can talk to, is Ariel Thomasy in here? Ariel? Okay. Uh, Ariel Thomasy is going to be the one who is uh, coordinating all that. But if, if you're not able to get a hold of her, just show up because it's going to be carrying some boxes and fluffing trees and all that kind of thing. So no uh, expertise required, but we could use a few extra arms and hands because next Sunday evening we will have our hanging of the green service. And if you've never attended that, that is one of my favorite, if not the favorite service of the year. And I'm not preaching. And I've come to find out that it's everybody's favorite, (laughs) which I I don't know how that fits. Uh, But anyways... So just be mindful of those things. Uh, probably one of the most unique sporting events in the world did not actually start out as a sporting event. It's Iditarod. How many of y'all have heard? It's not the Iditarod, it's Iditarod. How many of y'all have heard of Iditarod? It's, it's the world-famous dog sled race. And so you've got these riders uh, known as mushers and these teams of dogs attached to sleds. And they basically race for several days over a 1,000 miles through the Alaskan snow, all the way from Anchorage to to Nome. It's a really, really big deal. But it got started on a rather severe note. Here's what happened. In 1925, there were numerous children, hundreds of children apparently, who had come down with diphtheria in Nome. Now, diphtheria was highly contagious, and it was deadly, especially to children, and so actually children around the world were at that time in history dying from diphtheria. It's very serious. Uh, and unfortunately, there weren't widespread vaccinations. Those had not yet been introduced. But there was a serum that was available that could keep these children from dying. But the nearest store of serum was in Anchorage, which was a thousand plus miles away. And so they got this rescue effort underway where they basically transported 300,000 vials of the serum to Nanana via train. And then from that place, all the way into Nome, they had these different dog sleds in their teams. About 20 mushers and over 150 dogs were lined up along the path to do this relay race of sorts. And this relay rescue race became known as the Great Race of Mercy. And because of the right medicine and the radical, intense efforts of all of the mushers and their dog teams, hundreds of lives were literally saved. It was quite the event. Which, by the way, also back in 1925, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump were alive, and they were both trying to take credit for the creation and distribution (laughs) of the the vaccines. But that's another story. Maybe that's not true. I'm not sure. but it's probably not. Anyways, I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. I know. Slap me afterwards, Mark. Uh, but it was, it was quite the rescue event. Now, here's what's kind of interesting. To this day, dog sleds still get attached to the dogs and mushers still rut, rush down the same path 
but it's just a sporting event. It's really neat, very interesting. People love to come and participate and watch. It is the event, but nobody is rushing to save anybody's life. It's just an interesting contest of self-promotion and one-upmanship. Okay, now, as we think about the great race of mercy and the history of Iditarod, I can't help but ask a question. Here's the question. Is it possible? Is it possible that this great mission to rescue lives called the church has over time somehow in some way become something other than or less than what it originally was? That's just what happens with time. Sometimes things morph a little bit. And so is it possible that people could gather together and go through motions of discipleship and even attach themselves for an hour or two to mushers called teachers or pastors, uh, but we're not necessarily thinking about rescuing lives? It's just kind of an interesting event. Is that possible? I think it's possible that that happens from time to time. And uh, it's kind of convicting when I start thinking about it. And yet at the same time, here's some really, really good news for you. The good news is God is so patient with his people. He is so patient with you and, and with me because for thousands of years, God has had an interest in his people reaching out to other people who are not yet his people so that other people could also be his people. God has wanted that since the beginning of starting his people. You go all the way back to the promise to Abraham, and you see God had an intent to use his people to reach other people so that everybody could be his people. But the bad news is that while God is gracious and patient with you and with me, the bad news is we take advantage of his graciousness and patience in the worst of ways. But from the beginning, God's always had it in his mind that his people be involved necessarily in mission to rescue people. I could direct your attention to all kinds of passages, but this morning I want to direct your attention specifically to Psalm chapter 67. It's only seven verses long. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your ways may be known on earth your salvation among all nations may the peoples praise you O god may all the peoples praise you may the nations be glad and sing for joy for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth may the peoples praise you O god may all the peoples praise you Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. May God bless for him his word. You may be seated. Now, some of you may be wondering, okay, Ernest, uh, why the weird little color coding? We don't normally do that when we're reading through Scripture, and there's a reason. The reason I I did this is to help you to see a little bit more clearly the structure Because whether you always recognize it or not, there is structure, especially there's structure when it comes to Hebrew poetry, which the Psalms are. Because when you identify the structure, you're able to see what's the main point. And here what we have is something called a chiastic structure or chiastic structure, depending on how whoever you are, you pronounce it differently, it's fine. But it basically just means a structure of an X. 
Like if you look at fraternities, Phi Kappa Chi or sororities, Sigma Chi, the Chi is the X. Okay, so a chiastic structure forms a little X, and the center of the X marks the spot. And here we have a very, very clear chiastic structure. Verse 1 mirrors verse 7, verse 2 mirrors verse 6, verse 3 mirrors verse 5. In fact, very, very precisely, it's exactly the same language that's used. And then right smack dab in the middle, you have the unmirrored part. It also happens to be the longest part. And so you know, without a shadow of a doubt, what is the main point of the psalm. You don't have to guess at it. It's like it's put in bold by the person who has written this for you and for me by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the point is, God wants all the peoples of the earth to know him. He wants to rule all. He wants to guide all. He wants his people to bring in other people so that the whole earth would be filled with his praise. That's his agenda. Specifically, verse 4, right in the center of it all, it tells us, May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples justly. And guide the nations of the earth. Now, you know what's also kind of interesting about this psalm, not just the content, but some of the history. By the time of Christ, and about a thousand years passes from the psalm to the coming of Jesus, about a thousand years pass, and during that period of time, the people of Israel came to identify this psalm with the 49 days that happened between the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Pentecost, and some, or the Feast of Weeks, and we know it better by its Greek name, the Feast of Pentecost. And so there's 49 days that happen. There's 49 Hebrew words here, and people associated this psalm with, with that period of time. In fact, when Pentecost would come, the people of God, the Jews, would sing this psalm, Psalm 67, because it was associated with Pentecost. Now, I think that's kind of cool, especially when you remember that it was at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that God sent the Holy Spirit upon His people, upon the followers of Jesus. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and guess what happened? They proclaimed the gospel. They preached good news by the Holy Spirit to all the nations and all the peoples and the, and the people who'd come from the ends of the earth who'd all gathered together at Pentecost. That's kind of neat. I think that's pretty cool. Now, here's what's not cool. What's not so cool is that for a thousand years, as the people of God were thinking about this psalm and about God's heart to reach all the nations and all the peoples and rule all the peoples and guide all the nations, as they were thinking about this and singing that song for a thousand years, none of the people of God actually had a passion to reach outside of Israel to bring more people in. For a thousand years, the Jews really weren't that concerned about the salvation of the Gentiles. You know what else is not really very cool? From the time the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and they were filled and they spoke in other languages and they bore testimony about Jesus to all of these other people who were from all over the place. From that moment to the time the church actually went outside the boundaries of Israel to start winning people, a decade passed. Jesus has told them, You'll, you're going to be my witnesses to all nations, to all people. And then the Holy Spirit comes and then it's a miraculous moment. And then another decade passes before the church ever brings the gospel to non-Jews. And the lesson in all of this is really, really simple. It's not natural for you or for me to do what God actually, most desperately, wants for us to do. For some reason, the last thing that the people of God ever 
for a thousand years before Jesus and even with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the last thing the people of God ever really naturally want to do is as the people of God reach more people so that more people can become people of God. Now, does that... That's terrible. And, and yet, I understand that. Okay, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm, I'm here too. I'm part of the, part of the body. We get it. Uh, we don't necessarily want naturally to bring more people and we kind of do but not enough to actually do it we can sing about it like the jews jews a year after year after year after year after year and we can remember moments of the holy spirit coming upon us in power but on the whole day in and day out year after year after year it's just not in our wheelhouse to actually want to reach more people to bring more people into being the people of god that's just not what we want to do but as we all know it doesn't matter what you want and it doesn't matter what i want what matters is what God wants because that's kind of the way the body works. See, Jesus is the head, we're the body, so that means we do what he wants us to do. It doesn't matter what you want, what matters is what, what he wants. Which, by the way, when we do have, you know, monthly business meetings or ministry meetings, and hopefully they'll be even more exciting in the future, uh, look, here's, here's what we do. It's not about me getting my way. It's not about you getting your way. It's not about deacons having their way or CLC having their way or the committee having their way or the trustees having their way or... Brad having us, that's not about, that's not it. What we do fundamentally as a church is we discern together through process what is it that God wants. That's it. It doesn't matter. Anything else doesn't matter. We're just trying to discern what Jesus wants because what he wants matters most or should matter most to us. And what is really, really clear throughout history from the beginning, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and forward, you go to Jesus, you go to the book of Acts. What God wants as much as anything or more than anything else is for us to have the passion and the heart of God, which is for us as his people to reach other people. At the heart of who we are as a church is this mission. And so the time, in the time that remains, here's what I want to do. I want us just to talk about mission because next Sunday at the hanging of the green service, which you've got to go because it is amazing. It's a great service. We're going to start taking an, um, uh, an offering for Lottie Moon. It's international missions. All that money that goes to that offering goes specifically 100% to international missions and missionaries. It's fantastic. We do that every year all the way up through Christmas. That's, that's that dedicated offering. As we think about that and as we heard from our missionaries last week, I just wanted us to think a little bit seriously about the fact that we're on mission. Just the fact that we have mission as the people of God, not just internationally but locally. The fact that we are on mission. The elements of successful mission, kind of the heartbeat or the vibe of life lived on mission. And then finally, what is it that we need to keep in mind that will keep us missional even though it doesn't come naturally, even though we have a tendency to get kind of discouraged. And so let's just start here real simple. Let's just start with the fact that if you're a believer, if you're blessed, you're on mission. Whether you're living on mission or not, you're on mission as a person who has been given the Holy Spirit and saved. Look, you you go to the first couple of verses of, of Psalm chapter 67, and you see that two major passages or themes in the Bible are combined into just these two little verses. On the one hand, you've got Numbers chapter 6, the ironic blessing where Aaron says the, the rather famous blessing. Um, if you can put that up there. You know, Lord, we, do we have that? There we There we go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You, have you heard that? 
We don't do that around here. Maybe, maybe I ought to do that around here more frequently. But that's a kind of a very common blessing, and it communicates all the desires and needs in your heart. If you're going to have them, it's going to be the Lord. The Lord has to do it. It has to be the Lord that blesses you. You can't just bless yourself any more than you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It has to be the Lord. So there's the blessing. But then the second part in verse 2, it mirrors something in the Old Testament, the promise that God gives to Abraham. And he says, I'm going to bless you, but here's why I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you as a nation so that you will be a blessing to all the nations, to all of the peoples. Both of these two major passages are brought together in these two little verses here. So it says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Why? Here's why. That your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among the nations. There's a principle here. It's a real simple principle. God blesses us, blesses you, blesses me, so that we would be a blessing. Do we have another one? Is that? There we go. God only blesses us that we might be a blessing uh, to, to others. God never invites us into a personal, intimate relationship with him without simultaneously pressing us out in a challenging way to minister to and to bless other people. In fact, if you don't share the blessing of God, then God's blessing, when it's not shared, it, it rots. You might remember in the Old Testament, there's this time when the people of God are wandering in the wilderness, and as they're wandering, God takes care of them, and he gives them manna, which I don't know exactly what it looked like. People debate. Maybe it was like, looked like pumpkin seeds or something. I don't know. They pick it up off the ground. You could ground it up, make cakes and, you know, breads and that kind of thing with it. It sustained the people of God. But God said, look, when I give you this manna, just collect enough for you and your family and just do it for one day. No hoarding allowed. Because if you hoard it, guess what? It's going to rot. It's going to stink. That's what happens when we're blessed and we hoard it. We spoil. It happens for adults. It happens with kids. This is really unfortunate. You know, Jean and I were talking. She's wanting to write a book. I'm not going to tell you what the title is because the title of the book's like worth a million bucks. I mean, I'm not kidding you. I will not tell you the title. You just have to be looking for it because she just feels like, you know, I really need to be writing something with regards to, to child-rearing stuff. She gets asked that a lot as a teacher. It kind of comes up. But we were sort of talking about it the other day, and, and I think way back when in the beginning, maybe like way, way back then, you know, like 15 years ago, there was this talk about parents hovering over their children too much. And I might call it umbrella parenting, where the parents are hovering so that the kids don't get sunburned when it's sunny or get wet when it's rainy, you know, just protecting, overly protective parents. And that kind of got replaced with this other image of helicopter parenting, where parents hover, but then they swoop in when it gets hard for the kids, and then they can pull them out and take them somewhere else. And, and then that got, got replaced with another image, lawnmower parents who go in front of the kids and mow down all the obstacles so life is real nice and neat and the ground is even and stuff is simple. So whatever the next iteration of this, the, the concept is, parents need to shower blessing upon blessing upon blessing, you know, give them as much comfort and blessing as possible. The problem with that attitude is when we shower our children with too much blessing and prosperity and affirmation without at the same time providing the appropriate challenge to serve something or someone better or bigger than their own individual interests and happiness, guess what happens? They spoil. 
I, I read this from a, from a psychologist, and I'm just going to go ahead and repeat this. Probably should have put it on the screen. He said, when it comes to children, complete financial security, excessive freedom to learn and explore, and the provision of a very wide range of interesting opportunities for entertainment, recreation, and education will most often lead children to apathy, laziness, and inability to commit to goals, attitudes of entitlement, indecisiveness, moodiness, irritability, without provocation, low self-confidence, and insecurity. People are starting to learn, unfortunately, that too much blessing and prosperity and affirmation piled on the children without the challenge to serve creates rotten kids, spoils people. I was reading this this tweet, and I can't remember who it was that sent it out. It was basically, hey, if you know you make a million dollars in the stock market, what are you going to do? And there were three options. One was spoil the ones you love. Number two, spoil the ones you love. Or number three, spoil the ones you love. And as I read that, I thought, well, that's kind of funny because that's what we want to do. We want to take things and spoil other people. The problem is you don't really want to spoil somebody. Oh, my parents spoiled me. Yeah, that's not really good. Don't brag about that because spoiled milk stinks. Nobody wants to drink it. God is a wiser parent than any human being or psychologist has ever been. So if God blesses you, he blesses you in order to be a blessing to other people. It's always attached. He never spoils us. He blesses us that we would bless other people. It always necessarily goes together. Think of it like this. Just get this mental picture in your mind. The blessing of God is the water of life and you are the pipe, the the conduit of blessing. You're not a container. You're not a bowl. You're you're not a a, a bottle. You're a, a pipe. But guess what happens when the pipe acts like a container or a bowl? Nobody's ever happy about it. How many of you have ever been happy? Like, oh, I'm so glad my toilet won't flush. There's a clog. Praise God, it's not acting like a pipe. It's a container. Nobody does that. I'm just so happy that my sink doesn't drain. You ever say, I turn on the faucet and nothing comes out because it's plugged up? Nobody does that. Whenever a pipe starts acting like a container, God's not happy. Nobody else around you is happy. And guess what? You don't actually get that happy either because we weren't designed to be containers. We were designed to be Pipes, conduits of God's blessing. And when, when you don't bless other people, you know, they notice. And it gets kind of weird. Here's in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 26. It says, people will curse anyone who hoards grain, but a blessing will come to the one who sells it. God didn't make us to be hoarders because when you start hoarding things, you've stopped the flow of the blessing. Here's another one in Ecclesiastes. There is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his own harm. We're blessed to be a blessing. And so you say, well, Ernest, I'm blessed. I've been given the Holy Spirit. I have the, I have my, my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm saved. I've got the gospel. I'm blessed. Okay, listen. If you're a Christian and you acknowledge that you're blessed, you're blessed for one reason. To be a blessing to other people. The blessing of God was not something that you're just going to soak in for a while. That's, that's like, I don't know what that's like. Dry rot? Or something. That's not what you were designed for. You're designed to be a pipe. And the the glory or the value of the pipe is the amount of blessing that flows through. The the value of a container is how much it can hold. 
let's not get things confused. God's not confused. Now, that's who we're designed to be. That's what God's design is. That's what God's desire is. Now, here's the question. Why is it that we would be so reluctant to give blessing, especially when you think about the three components of effective or successful mission? And here, here they are. Let me just line them out for you, then we'll kind of go through the, the psalm here. The components of successful mission, the, the elements, are essentially truth, a truth worth sharing, justice, a justice worth advancing, and then community, a community worth building. Everybody thinks they want truth, and everybody seems to be these days all about justice. And one of the words that everybody's throwing around that's so big is like community. We want community. We want justice. We want truth. Why in the world would we shrink then from this mission? Because those are the essential elements of the mission. You see that right here in this text. Let's just go through these one at a time. Uh, you'll notice that the, the text tells us, Your ways may be known on earth. Okay, That's why. That your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among the nations. Now, God's ways is truth, but it's not just any truth. It's the truth that makes the rest of this possible, that, that makes it possible for God to rule, to be your ruler, to be your king, that makes it possible for, for God to be your guide. And, and guide could also be translated as shepherd. How is it that somebody can become shepherded by God or ruled by God? It's the gospel in particular that we help people to understand. It's, it's His grace. And when you understand the gospel, the grace of God and the truth of God, the truth that really matters, you're not going to hold back from it because it's not just true, it's beautiful truth. This afternoon, at some point, I'm going to, I'm going to be watching the Dallas Cowboys. I don't even know who they're playing. I don't know what time they're on, but I'm going to watch because I am a Cowboys fan and C.D. Lamb is on my fantasy football team, okay? So I'll be watching. In fact, I don't know what time they're playing. I know that our Thanksgiving is at what time? Three, Three o'clock. Oh, man. I'm sorry. I'm not going to be here for the Thanksgiving service. <laughs> Apologize. C.D. Lamb's playing. But I'm, no, I, I will be here. 90% sure I'm going to be here. So let, let's just suppose this afternoon C.D. Lamb does what he always does, which is something amazing where maybe he's running down the sideline and he catches like a 50-yard pass with one hand, taps both feet before falling on the ground and holds it. And I get real excited. You know what I'm naturally going to do? I'm going to call Gina into the room. She's not there already. and say, you got to see this. So I'm going to rewind it and I'm going to show it. And, and then Gina's going to go, you got me out of bed for this or whatever the case is. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how she's going to respond or Nathan or, or Morgan if they're still here or whatever. But if I'm excited, I'm going to rewind it. I'm going to show it. You know why? Because that's truth. And it's beautiful truth. Because my fantasy team is going to win. And also, you know, that I, that I care about the Cowboys too. But mainly my fantasy team. But anyways, you know what I mean? You get excited about something, you're going to share it. It doesn't matter how people are going to respond. And the truth of the matter is, by the grace of God, you've been brought into the family of God. And God is a king like no other and a shepherd like no other and a friend like no other. And when you know this, it shouldn't be that hard to get excited about it and share it regardless of somebody's response or lack thereof. So there's a truth worth sharing, but there's also a justice worth promoting. And, and, and we see this in, in different ways, but I'll just kind of point this out to you. It says that God rules His people justly. And so, look, we get excited, we get joyful about the reality that God has given a relationship to us, but we also get excited about what the Lord is going to bring about for us as well. It's not just who God is, but it's what God's doing. And here's what God's going to do. God's going to make all things right. He's going to set the captives free, even those who've died in captivity. He's going to take everything that was wrong and he's going to make things right. And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and he's going to restore all things. And so there's justice and there's balance. 
But while we know that that is the future, what lies ahead, we're also not naive as Christians. That is to say, I don't believe in some sort of, you know, shallow, superficial utopia that's going to be brought about because of political change or economic change or some sort of social programming change. Look, some politics are better than others. Some economics are better than others. I get that. We're not going to have to argue with that. But I, I know that all things are not going to be made right through all of these different systemic changes because the gospel is God was in relationship with us, then there was sin, and that messed everything up. Jesus Christ was given by God so as to cover our sin so that what is yet to come will come, but part of the gospel is there's a sin problem, and apart from that sin problem ever being dealt with, the systemic change isn't going to do anything, not substantial. I get it. And at the same time, while I'm not Pollyannish in my thinking, I know what's coming, and I know God is all about justice. And so we're going to work, hopefully, to, to rectify things, to set things right, to be on the side of justice, to be on the side of the poor, to, to rectify things appropriately and address what we can because we know that whatever we're doing now is going to reflect appropriately in the present what God is up to in the future. And so we do justice. We preach truth that matters. And then we also do community or build right community. And everybody's all over this. I, I, we, I could look at this in different ways, but just notice that when God says God will bless us, our God will bless us. God will bless us. Every time we see us as Western individualists, we have a tendency to think about us in terms of, well, this person and this person and this person and this person. We think about a hundred individuals as being us. In Near Eastern thinking, us was community. Us was like us. And so the idea is when God blesses us as us, there's a centripetal force that pulls people in because good community, godly community, community lived as if God is our king and we are his people. That's compelling to people. Or let me just put it like this. Suppose if instead of using sex coercively or to divide or as a, a, a trip of power, what if it was used specifically to create families and to bring husbands and wives together? It was used only for unity, not to separate or divide. What if we use power and money for the benefit of other people rather than out of self-interest? What if we used it to serve rather than to create a situation where we're being better served ourselves. That's compelling to community. It's very much the same as what Jesus was praying in John chapter 17, I think verse 21, when he says, listen, Father, you know, I, I want the world to know that you sent me, so help my disciples to have unity or this radical love for one another. What happens when we do community right? It's compelling to people outside, and so if we want to be compelling on our mission, we have to be compelling with regards to our own community. So at the heart of the matter is all of this understanding of we just promote truth, we promote justice, we do community. There's nothing embarrassing or put-offish or repulsive about any of this. This is the kind of thing that we all ought to naturally want to get on board with. And when we start thinking about the nature of our mission or the elements of mission, it also ought to give us a little bit of, of joy and excitement. And that's the motivation here is increasing joy and gladness ultimately Joy and gladness for God as he's getting the joy and the gladness from all of the peoples of the earth. Let's go back to the text. Remember, verse 4 is at the center of the X, the big point. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. 
the vibe of our lives lived on mission for God is just gladness and joy, and specifically the gladness and joy over the gladness and joy of other people that we ought to already be experiencing in our relationship with God. Let me just kind of slow down and go back to the, to the New Testament, okay, or forward to the New Testament. In Luke chapter 10, there's this moment where Jesus sends the disciples out on mission. And he sends them out, and he says, you know, preach the gospel and heal the sick and cast out demons, set people free from all these evil forces. And they go out on mission, and as they go out on mission, they're successful. They come back to Jesus, and they go, wow, this was amazing. We, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus is not happy about that response. And he corrects them and he says, you rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice. Why? Not because of all the power and the Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now that gets lost on us a little bit because so much gets written. We've got publishing houses and printing presses and everybody's got a blog post or a Twitter feed or whatever the case is. And so there's so many words all over the place. Back in the day, though, you didn't have your name written very many places. Not many people could write. There weren't a lot of lists everywhere. So if we're talking about lists, where were people's names on the lists? On the town or city registry. You were on the list of the town, but only if you were the citizen. Jesus is saying, don't rejoice that you've got, you know, I got the power, or whatever the case is. You know, like, who cares? That, does that really turn you on? Oh, I could cast out a demon. I, that may sound really kind of, oh, wow, I could have been in the exorcist or something like that. I don't know what they're getting off on or whatever. But it's like, Jesus is like, that's not a big deal. The big deal that you ought to be joyful about is that your names were written in heaven and your names were written in heaven before you ever went out on mission. So you ought to go out on mission not for you, but for the benefit of other people to share the gladness and the joy that you already have because you're, you're citizens of heaven. We don't do ministry to other people so as to make ourselves glad and joyful. We do ministry to other people because we're already glad and joyful. It's the difference between being the pipe through which the water flows or being the container that you're trying to fill yourself up through ministry. And if in ministry you're trying to fill yourself up with something other than the gospel because the gospel alone doesn't satisfy, you're undermining yourself in terms of mission in two ways. One, you're saying the gospel is not enough. And number two, you're using people so as to fill yourself up rather than simply serving people the way that God would have us to serve them. There's a huge difference between the two different sides of the situation. Okay, go back to 1925. In 1925, when everybody was attached to their sleds, racing the cure to Nome, everybody knew those sledders, those mushers and the dogs and all the rest, they weren't doing it for themselves. It was all about the children. And yeah, it was exciting, I would imagine, to have been on mission and to finally have accomplished something. It's not that there wasn't joy in the mission, but they weren't doing it for them themselves. They were doing it for the kids. They were actually saving people's lives. Now, when people run the route, it's largely, you know, self-promotion, a challenge of one-upmanship. Jesus says ministry, go, be doing life on mission, it's not about one-upmanship or making yourself glad and joyful. You do it out of an overflow of what you already have. And here's what you already have. You're already citizens of heaven. You just, out of the overflow of the gladness and the joy that is yours, you bring other people in. And the fact that they were more glad about the ability to cast out demons than they were that their names were already written in heaven kind of demonstrated that they weren't doing it out of an overflow of what they already had. 
See, there ought to be a vibe of joy. And I know in our better moments, that's what happens. But that vibe of joy will never happen if it's only a sporting event and not an actual mission. That brings us to the last thing that I think we need to keep in mind, and this is really, really helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful to you. Uh, uh, That is, there is a certain hope that we can fix our minds on. The hope that gives us daily relief as we live on mission is the then that lies just over the horizon. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. Listen, when, when, when you're trying to advance truth and justice and and you're trying to build community and all the rest, you're going to be really, really frustrated in ministry. It's just the, the nature of it. This is oftentimes why people shrink back because it's frustrating. You, you try to share the truth and it's rejected. You do that with your children or your coworkers or your friends or whatever, and it, it's not just that they're not listening to you. They're not listening to God speaking through you. And it's frustrating. Or you try to serve. You, you serve the poor in some respect. You're sacrificial in the way that you advance justice, however that is. And then after years or decades of contribution and ministry, the poor are still with you, like Jesus said. In fact, maybe the economy even got worse. Or you try to build community, but you know the nature of people to gossip. Or you try to deal with the issue, but when you confront with the issue, the issue actually gets worse because people like to hold on to their stuff and maybe things didn't work out well in your community group or church or neighborhood or family or whatever. You try to do ministry and make things right, and it just doesn't go that easily. How do you keep moving when you're seeing all of this? Here's how. There is a then. At the end of the text, it says, Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. And just in case you missed it, in case you didn't notice that God's going to bless us, God will bless us. This is going to happen. And all the ends of the earth will fear Him, revere Him, respect Him, bow in awe before Him. Here's what the verse is gently reminding us of. Because most commentators, in fact, every commentator I've seen looks at the then as, you know, way out there in the future. This is coming. Then, then this is going to happen. It's a gentle reminder that as much as we try to preach the truth, sometimes maybe we don't understand it. Sometimes we don't preach it or teach it or communicate it as effectively as we should. And sometimes people don't receive it as much as we try. Truth doesn't always come through. And as much as we try to bring about balance, make things right in the family or with our children or neighbors or community, whatever it is, sometimes because there is brokenness in us and those to whom we minister, community doesn't just happen. Sometimes we, we try to work things out and they just don't. We want to reconcile, but there's, it's not going to happen because it takes two It's a general reminder that as much as we try, only God is going to pull this off. But He will. But He will. This is pointing forward to the new heavens and the new earth. This is pointing forward to the the springtime harvest that will put an end to all winters. There is there is this this moment where the harvest comes and the ground will never lie fallow again. God is going to set all things right. He will because He is God.
And so as long as you're doing what it is that you know you need to be doing, you recognize that it's not actually ultimately in vain because your dream is in keeping with the dream of God. I uh, came across something from uh, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, which, by the way, you know, now that Morgan is in the family, I can correct certain deficiencies. And she's never seen Lawrence of Arabia. I'm sorry, we're going to fix that really soon. Uh, but T.E. Lawrence in Lawrence of Arabia, and it's a true story, has this wonderful statement, this wonderful saying. He says, all people dream, but not all people dream equally. Those who dream through the night in the dusty recesses of their minds awake to the day to see that it was all vanity. But the dreamers of the day are the dangerous people. For the others work out their dreams with eyes wide open. I love that. It speaks to me in so many different levels, but I just kind of wonder every once in a while, how do you keep dreaming with your eyes wide open when you see the despair, you see the falsehoods, you see the rejection of truth, you see the injustice, you see the lack of community, you see the hatred. And all. How do you keep going? Here's how. You, you, you dream his dream. Well, isn't that crazy? How do you dream a dream with your eyes wide open? You make sure that it's God's dream because God's not crazy. Because he's the head and we're the body. We dream with him and we live in accordance with the dream that he has for us. And we know that nothing that we do is in vain no matter how, how it looks in the moment. Because how things look in the moment can be deceptive. You keep pressing forward on mission. Why? Because it's about what he wants. And he's blessed you to be a blessing. You press forward in mission. Why? Because... Truth and justice and community are beautiful things. You press forward on his dream because ultimately that, that ought to fill you with absolute and utter joy to overflowing that you want other people to have the gladness and the joy that you want. And you do it above all else because you know where God is taking this whole world. There is coming a time when all the peoples of the earth will praise him. All of the peoples. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, uh, I, I pray that you would help us as your people to not take advantage of your grace in the worst of ways, causing you to be patient in our uh, disobedience. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us the grace to know the joy of obedience to you, of seeing you work, of watching lives change having other people know the gladness and the joy that we have received. And so, Lord, I don't really know how this message speaks to everybody here, but to me, I just recognize uh, we, we, we were called for so much more than to be an event. Uh, we were called to an incredible mission. And I know, Lord, that that mission is still important because there are still lives that need saving. There are still more people that need to be brought in so as to sing your praises. And the time is growing short. Grant us the holy urgency 
to press forward in the best of ways, a holy urgency that is in keeping with the cure that you have given us in Christ and in keeping with people who have a a heartbeat that uh, matches yours. Forgive us, Lord, not just for what we've done, but for what we don't do. Forgive us for hearts that don't beat in tune with yours. Forgive us our complacency and uh, lead us in the way everlasting. And Lord, we are in this moment, even as we feel convicted, challenged, we are in this moment still filled with gladness and joy because our names are in heaven that nothing's going to change that. And moment by moment, your atoning grace is sufficient to keep us in relationship with you. And that gives us a joy. May that joy and that gladness and that appreciation of your humility and sacrifice inspire us all the more to dream your dream for us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand as we close in worship. I'll be at the back to talk with you and pray with you about whatever the Lord's laid on your heart. You just remain open to God as we continue and close in worship.